Saskia Teep was born in 1954 and lived in a displaced persons camp outside Nuremberg until she was seven. Saskia describes the bravery of her mother Brigitte in escaping from a train to Auschwitz and her long journey to safety. Brigitte suffered greatly under the Nazis, a Michelin mixed ancestry, then under the Czechs as a Sudeten German, and finally as a refugee in the DP camp. Saskia and her mother overcame the trauma of war and its aftermath and gradually rebuilt their lives in Britain. Good afternoon, Saskia. I'm contacting you from Glasgow, Scotland, and today is the 15th of December 2021. So would you like to start off, Saskia, by telling us your full name and when you were born and where you were born? Okay. So my name is Saskia Teep. I was born in 1954, January the 31st, in Germany, in Fürth, which is in Bavaria, near Nuremberg. I was actually born in an orphanage. Um, so there's a whole story as to how I um, that came about. And um, I guess the way to tell that story of my birth is to start with my mum's story. She was born in what was uh, later known as the Sudetenland, um, which is now Czechoslovakia, in an area near the Polish border, places now called uh, Kurnov, then it was called Jägendorf. She was born in 1915, during the First World War, and at that point it was part of the Habsburg Empire. There has to be a little bit of history explained so that you understand the situation that she was born into. Um, after the war, 1918, um, she was three years old. Her mum passed away. And I suppose the biggest effect on her life was the fact that Czechoslovakia was created as a result of the end of the war. So her homeland was not the same. The Czechs started to rule what had been a German-speaking part of the of the empire. And over the years, there was a lot of acrimony, I guess is the word, um, against the Czechs ruling that part of, of her homeland. The border that she was on was with Poland, but so she could speak Polish, she could speak um, German, and um, she spoke Czech. Her father was a, he was a customs official. Um, he was fairly well off, sort of middle class, but as a result of the war, inflation at the at the end, they lost a lot of their money. She told me a lot about losing everything and this seemed to affect her life. She was mostly brought up by her grandmother, Cecily, who owned an inn about a mile away from where they lived, and uh, her grandmother was Jewish. Her father was Catholic, and her mother had been Jewish, but converted to Catholicism um, before she married. So it wasn't as though she changed her religion because of getting married. She just changed her religion. It was a common enough thing. Jewish people had been in that area, had kind of been allowed to integrate into normal society fairly early on in the 1870s around that area. So it wasn't as though they were sort of isolated as in a lot of 
like Russian areas and so on. There was quite an age difference between my mum's, my grandmother and my grandfather. But unfortunately, even though she was so young, she died in 1918, strangely enough, of the pandemic, the, um, the Spanish the flu. flu. The yeah. Spanish flu. Mm-hmm. So my mum was brought up by a stepmother. She didn't get on too well with her. I guess there was some jealousy involved. So she spent a lot of time with her, her Jewish grandmother. By the time she was 23, when her war started, she was looking after her father who'd had a stroke. She was working um, as a bookkeeper. She was engaged to be married um, to a Catholic. I suppose life was uh, reasonable. She was impressed by Hitler about what he promised, what he said he was going to do for the German people, for the Sudeten Germans. Unfortunately, as she told me, um, she didn't know what was going to happen. So, as part of the war starting, and for her it happened in, um, in 1938, because she was in the Sudetenland, and if you know your history, the Sudetenland was given by the Allies to Hitler to appease him, to stop war coming. So Hitler himself actually came to the town where she lived, Jägendorf, um, as part of that succession, accession, I don't know what the word is. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, she once told me that she had seen Hitler, which I thought was pretty amazing. Uh, when I found out that he had been there, it all kind of made sense, which brings me to a point that a lot of what she told me was memories, and they were mostly memories of her homeland and the and the songs that she sang, happy memories. I didn't know anything about what happened to her until I was thirteen. I didn't even know that she had been Jewish, brought up Jewish, uh, raised Jewish initially, I guess, or what happened to her. So when I was thirteen is when she told me the story that I'm about to tell you. So she was engaged to yes. a young man? Yes, she was. And with the coming of the Nazis came their laws, uh, including the Nuremberg laws that had been passed, which stipulated what um, what Jews could and could not do and stipulated how they, in a sort of pseudo-scientific way, how much uh, pure Aryan blood you had in you, depending on your lineage, your parents and your grandparents. They went back to the grandparents because they knew people converted. My mother had to prove how much of a Jew she was by providing proof, birth certificates, death certificates, marriage certificates, etc., and it was established that she was a Michelin Jew, a mixed-race Jew, a mongrel, if you like, of the first degree, because she had two Jewish grandparents, her her grandmother and her um, grandfather, who she hadn't known. And as such, she was given a pass uh, with a, an indication that she was mixed-race, Michelin, and she was subject to the laws uh, which included curfew, things like that they weren't allowed to have telephones, they weren't allowed to write diaries, they weren't allowed to travel on public transport, 
except for specific times. They were not allowed to go food shopping until after the good Germans had done their food shopping. And, of course, um, rationing. I think the rationing was allocated um, how much of a Jew you were for full-term <laughs> Jews, if you like. It was about 500 calories a day, which if you put that into commonplace parlance, that would be about a Big Mac hamburger. And uh, I read, a, I read a, a diary by Victor Klemper, who was a professor based in Dresden, um, who wrote in great detail about what happened to him during the war. According to him, most of what he had was potatoes, because there wasn't much left in the stores, especially as the winters got harder and the war progressed. So it really was, you know, starvation level. Um, I think food was the main thing that was on people's uh, minds during the war, probably German as well as, as Jewish. So... The other thing, of course, was the fact that she was engaged to a German Catholic and he was supposed to renounce her. In fact, it was illegal for them to marry, uh, but he wouldn't give her up. So this, this was the words that she used. He wouldn't give me up. So they conscripted him into the army and sent him to the Eastern Front and she never saw him again. It was very common for them for the Nazis, or the Gestapo, and people, you know, people that were put in place, uh, keep the the regime going in a foreign country, for them to rely on people handing you over, I guess, you know, saying, "Oh yes, she's Jewish. I remember her grandmother," and so on. And so, um, it was it was a difficult time for her. There was a lot of a shame, she said, on her family, on her Aryan father who had been respected, there was a lot of shame, the fact that, you know, he now had a, a Jewish child. And yet at the same time, she was protected by the fact that he was um, Catholic and a respected person. Even the, the Nazis didn't quite know how to deal with the, um, with the Michelings because part of their parents were good German citizens and they, they didn't want to, um, you know, put up barriers so, in a way, um, she had it not too bad. She was, I'm sure, she would, while she was living with him, she was given food and she was able to listen to the radio, so on. She had a better life than others. But unfortunately, her father died in 1943, and that's really when um, things got bad for her. With no one to protect her, she was sent to um, forced labor. Um, the Nazi machine needed uh, workers, and they used the Jews, they used the Poles, they used anybody that uh, became prisoners of war uh, to keep the, the war machine going. Um, she was um, taken away from home, and she was put into a boarding house that had other Jewish uh, people living in there. They liked to keep an eye on, on them in groups. And she had to get up every morning and go and stand in line have the Gestapo member tell her where she was going to go and work. Uh, she told me once that an SS officer came to her room in the boarding house and beat her up. I don't know what the circumstances were. A friend of hers managed to get her to the to her the line so that she could, um, you know, apply for work 
on his bicycle. She couldn't walk, but she knew that if she didn't go and apply for work, they could possibly take her away on a transport. I should tell you that where she lived was, um, like I said, on the Polish border. It wasn't too far from Auschwitz. And I have I found a CV, a curriculum vitae, a, a resume, as the Americans say, that was made while she was trying to emigrate. And it's stipulated where she had worked during the war years. And I found out from that that she was working in Poland a lot of the time, not in Czechoslovakia. So wherever this boarding house was, it was in Poland. And I found out from the last place that she worked, a place called Kacar, that that's about um, 60 miles from Auschwitz on a direct line, train-wise. She said that she never told me in detail. A lot of this piecing together of her story was done, you know, after her death when I found documentation and started to put the whole story together. But she told me that she worked in a factory and she was in the office um, as a bookkeeper. Excuse me. Um, she was working as a bookkeeper and it was part of her job to go on the the local train to deliver money to different parts of this factory. So it must have been a huge area. And so she get to she got to know the um the railway tracks and the and the, the routes and so on, and that this was this was how she um survived the war because she was eventually put on a train. I should tell you, before she was put on the train, a story that she did tell me this particular night when I was 13. Um, she said she was lucky that she worked in the office. She was, she was warm, at least. There was heating there. Her bunkmate, so having told me that she had a bunkmate, I figured out that she must have been living on site um, in this office. I imagine something like in Schindler's List, something like that, where the mm -hmm. you know the workers are on on site in the factory. Her bunkmate's job was to clean the latrines. Well, the winters were terrible. That winter was really bad. That last winter, this must have been nineteen um, forty four, going to forty five, and knowing that if you did if you stopped working, that you you could be shot or you would be put on a train to Auschwitz. Um, faced with the choices of freezing to death, cleaning the latrines, or the other options, her bunkmate um, hanged herself. You oh, know, when my mum was telling me this... Terrible. She was very matter-of-fact. I mean, I was 13, so what do I know about understanding, you know, what that means? I, I kind of took it quite coolly as well at the time, but I'm... I'm good at that because a lot of happened in my life so I always sort of I'm pretty cool and resourceful and you know sit back and don't let things happen I think about it afterwards and work out how I'm going to cope with that and that's what happened at, at this particular time so continuing with the story she was eventually put on the train to Auschwitz and actually that's like I said that's what saved her because she knew the route and she said that she jumped off the train. She knew where the deepest snowdrifts were, and she waited for her moment and took a leap of faith and jumped into a snowdrift. 
Now, at the time, I took all that on board. But afterwards, when I looked at the pictures of what happened during the war, all I saw was these huge cattle trains that transported, you know, hundreds mm -hmm. in a cart at a time. And I thought, how could she have jumped out of that? But then I saw um, pictures online. Like I said, I kind of pieced the story together. I saw pictures. They actually moved prisoners in open-topped, like, coal trucks with guards sitting on, you know, keeping an eye on them. And I think this is what she was jumping out of. It's the only thing I could think where she would have visibility of where she was, too. Mm -hmm. So she escaped into a snowdrift. I'm sure she wasn't the only one, though she never mentioned it. And then she had... <laughs> you wonder how people think of these things. She decided that the safest place to be so that she wouldn't be captured or recaptured was to jump onto one of the trains that was taking wounded soldiers back to Germany. And to do this, she stole a nurse's uniform. She figured that if she was dressed as a as a nurse, that um, she would be safe because nobody would ask for her papers. I mean, if you were on a train, people anywhere, you were identifiable. She thought that was the safest thing to do. And so she was on the train nursing until she got to Dresden, which as the crow flies from where Katcher is, is about 100 miles. Or in kilometers, what, about 130? 40 or something like that. Something like that. Uh, yeah. yeah. So when she got to Dresden, she decided to get off the train because she had relatives on her father's side that lived not too far from there. And she thought, she knew the war was ending. There was talk of the Russians were coming, that there, were, there would be liberation. The war, you know, the Germans were losing. There was all that talk. Obviously, it was in secret. So she thought that maybe she could... Um, hide at her cousin's house if she would take her and uh, be there for the for the end of the war so she got off the train at the at the station in um, Dresden and she was waiting for a, another train to come to go to Marienburg she had a a bad feeling she said that she she just needed to get out of there now and while she was waiting she had befriended another girl and they decided that they would walk together and um, see how far they could get that day. They left the train station and they walked and they decided to spend the night in an empty barn and were woken that night with bombing and uh, fire in the distance and that was the night that Dresden was bombed. She said that she felt God was looking after her, making, giving her the wisdom to leave the train station. Needless to say, the train station was um, totally bombed out. Um, Dresden was one of the biggest bombings, even though the end of the war was coming and was a, a huge number of um, Germans lost their life. I understand that's war and there were decisions made to do that. She was lucky that she escaped. She basically had escaped with her life twice. And unfortunately, um, it was not yet the end, even though the Russians were coming you have to remember, my mom was German, first and foremost, and she was in Germany, and that was a bad place to be when the Russians were coming. She didn't talk about what happened to her. She just said that she was captured, recaptured, and put into another camp. And then after the war ended, she went 
back to her, her home. I think it was possibly to wait for her fiancé to come back. That was not a good place to go because after the war, there was a lot of retaliation against the German-speaking people. The Czechs uh, wanted retribution. And they didn't care whether you were Jewish or what you had gone through. As far as they were concerned, she was German of German blood. They did not want any German blood on their soil, which is kind of what, you know, the uh, the Germans had done to the Czechs. They didn't want any Czechs on their soil. It was retribution, simply put. So she was actually put into um, a camp, the same kind of camp that the Nazis had used. She was put into a camp and was there for um, two years until 1947. And then she was eventually moved, transported, I'm not sure of the details, to Germany because the Ger the Czechs had decided that they did not want any German blood on their soil. And so they cleared all the Germans out of these camps, whether they were on foot or on train. I don't know the details. She just said that she was taken back to Germany and she paid a black marketeer to make sure that um, she got to Western Germany. Remember, after the war, um, Germany was divided into to the, the Russian area. And if she had been taken under the Russians, um, she didn't think she could handle that. I should say my mother had um, a lot of bad feeling toward Russian soldiers. And I did not know the reason for that. It wasn't until after she died and I found some paperwork in a box, a lot of papers, um, you know, her uh, her parents' birth certificates and so on, uh, that I realized that she had had um, a baby in 1945. And she didn't tell me anything about that, so I'm assuming that um, it, that she was probably raped. And the fact that it was the Russians that she did not like, I'm assuming it was the Russians. I know there was a lot of rape and pillage went on um, at the end of the war. And of course, she was in Germany at that time, near Dresden. So for her, the war was a long one. It started in 1938 and it ended in 1947. But she was able to manage to get to Western Germany and she was then put into a, um, a hospital because she was uh, malnourished and she was sick. She had TB. She was kept um, there for three months until she was um, healed. And then she, she started her new life in Germany. She was given reparations money after the war. A lot of Jews, people that were affected by the Nazis, were given reparations money, and this was to help them start a new life, because obviously they had lost everything. She had lost her home. She had nothing to go back for, and she wasn't wanted. Unfortunately, it was too late for her to um, emigrate, as a lot of um, Jewish people had done after the war, as a lot of people that had ended up in Germany as a result of the war, you know, foreign workers, migrant workers that had been brought there by uh, the Nazis to work in their munitions factories and so on, slave labor. So she decided that she would have to make her life in Germany, and she used that money to go to school. 
She went to the university in Nuremberg. She ended up in Nuremberg and um, she studied. She spent the money on studying. She was living as a refugee. She, she was counted a, as a refugee because she had been expelled basically from Czechoslovakia as a result of the war. I don't know much about her life other than, you know, passes and so on. But so from that, I figured out where she had lived and discovered that it wasn't too far from the camp where I was born. And I guess now, finally, I come to my story. So I was born in 1954, which when you think that uh, the war ended in um, 47, that was a good long time. It took her a long time to build up her life, I guess. She did work. She did work occasionally um, doing secretarial work. She had a degree in economics, but after the war, there was very little work, and especially not for refugees. I mean, she was designated a refugee. And she lived near a big, huge refugee camp on the outskirts of Nuremberg, um, which was mostly mostly housed people from Poland, the Baltic areas. And she told me there that's where she met my father. And this was the story that she told me. I always assumed my father was the man that she had married. And I didn't realize that there was a whole secret involved. And uh, this was told to me when I was um, 13, when she told me this story, her story, basically, uh, very briefly. And I discovered that um, the man that I had been raised by was not my father. She told me what had happened to her was um, she had met uh, my father, who was seemingly Czech, in the, living in this um, refugee camp uh, on the outskirts of um, Nuremberg. And um, they had wanted to get married. They had tried to emigrate together to the U.S. Um, there was, you know, there was always a hope of emigration, but there were limited numbers that were taken um, by by countries across the world. I found a lot of papers where she had applied for um, immigration. So they had met, they had fallen in love, they were trying to emigrate, they had gone through the whole process, which is a long process for immigration. It's like a two-year process. And unfortunately, when she got to the medical which is the very last thing that you do. They discovered she had TB at the medical. So um, so she had to stay behind and get cured. They wouldn't take somebody with TB. Mm-hmm. So the agreement was that he would carry on and, and uh, go to the US and that once she was cured, she would go to a sanatorium, take the cure. Once she was cured, she would uh, reapply and follow. Um, and But it wasn't until she was in the sanatorium undertaking the cure that she discovered that she was pregnant and the reason they didn't know that she was pregnant was uh, actually a result of the the, the starvation that um, people had undergone um, it, women it affected their periods so she didn't actually realize that she was pregnant until she was five months gone with me and discovered this in the sanatorium which was a bit of a shock for her I guess uh, was certainly she, a shock for I him. <laughs> she would also absolutely, and I presume she would be very thin as well. So she was, yes, would just yeah, yeah. Took a long. I've seen. I mean, I have pictures of her, and you can see how thin she is after mm-hmm. the war. 
you know, and when you have TB, you're not you're not a well person. No. And I think she had bouts of it. They didn't have a cure for it at that point. You just underwent a period of, um, you know, rest. And once you were cleared by the doctors, then you were okay to um, carry on. Um, so that's what she was hoping for that, um, I guess, when she went into the sanatorium, that there, were, that there would be a future with him. But unfortunately, there wasn't to be because she was pregnant. She would never have been taken as a as a an immigrant by the, um, by the Americans or anybody else come to that matter as a pregnant woman or as a single mother because in those days that was a shame it was a shameful thing to be to have an illegitimate child so really her her life choices were um, were limited yet again all this hope for um, immigration failed. Um, so she decided that she was going to have to make her life in Germany because she wanted to keep me. I was put into an orphanage um, to begin with uh, when, I, when I was born, and I was in that orphanage until I was three. In those three years, my mother uh, met a Pole, and they made an agreement. That's, that this is what she, she told me. It was a marriage of convenience. They decided to get married, he because he needed a wife, he had uh, suffered under the Nazis as well. And she would marry him to look after him, be a wife to him, as long as he would um, take me on as his child and she could get me out of the orphanage. So for her, it was a marriage of convenience. Can I, can I just ask why you were in an orphanage for three years? Was it because your mother couldn't keep you or was it because TB... Well, initially it was TB. She was still in the sanatorium. I was born in the sanatorium. It was a funny family story where she took me to that place where I was, the sanatorium where she was in Fürth in Germany. And uh, we were walking up the stairs and she sort of pointed like this and said, this is where you were born. And I thought I was born on the staircase. It's <laughs> <laughs> a bit... <laughs> Yeah, so there you go. Children sometimes misunderstand their parents, Absolutely. don't they? <laughs> but that was a story that we liked to tell afterwards. It was uh, uh, when I told her what I had understood by it. <laughs> so, yes, um, she couldn't look after me. She was very sick. Um, and that's why I was put into the orphanage. And then a single parent in those days was a no-no. It's not like... What happened a lot on, in those days is if there was a, a you know an Ill illegitimate child born, the grandparents raised it as a sibling. Mm -hmm. You know that was often the way that they handled it. Well, my mother didn't have anyone. Her father had died. She was rejected by her um, her stepmother, so I mean, she was on her own, and she couldn't have me. She couldn't raise me. She needed to get married to be able to get me out of that orphanage. And so um, this marriage of convenience came, opportunity came along and she took it. And it was an agreement that they made that she would be his wife and look after him and feed him. Um, he'd already been married before he was a widower and um, and he would allow her um, to take me out of the orphanage. And I was going to be raised as part of the Pietkiewicz family. And so it was at three years old, I met my uh, my father as I thought he was 
And uh, unfortunately, our a lovely family unit didn't last very long because he got TB. And um, for health reasons, uh, we were living in a refu- the refugee camp on the outskirts of Nuremberg. Um, as a family unit, uh, it was dangerous to, you know, for a child to, to live in with parents who had, or one parent or another, had TB. So I was actually fostered out away from the family. And at three and a half, I spent six months with uh, my new parents. And um, I was fostered, sent to uh, Switzerland for my health. I wasn't I wasn't a healthy child. I had a lot of bronchitis and so on. And I think they were worried that I was going to get pneumonia. So I was sent to the Alps for the fresh air. And after six months, I came back hale and brown and plump. And my mother was so impressed by what had happened that after I'd been home with her for six months, she decided that the conditions were better with uh, foster families than they were in the camp. So she fostered me out again, this time to a, a Belgian family. And so I went for another six months and I came back with wonderful new clothes and a happy stories to tell her and so on. And she had me home for another six months. Then she decided that I needed to go back there. And the, one of the reasons was it wasn't that she was necessarily sick or he was necessarily sick when I was there or not there. Some of it was purely so that she could go out and work while he was sick and, you know, make some uh, extra money. Because living in the camp, you know, was borderline. You were basically living on on charity. These, the camp was run by the United uh, Nations and the Catholic Church was the kind of lifeblood of it. And it was this fostering was organized by the Catholic um, Church. So it ensured that I had I had a good life, at least, or as good a life as I could have, while they were still trying to uh, get immigration papers, you know, and and move out of that camp. The camp in 1960 housed something like 4,000 people. So you can imagine the conditions rife with TB. They hadn't got a cure. The only cure was to go into a sanatorium. And uh, my my father, the man I thought was my father, he um, he was in and out of the sanatorium several times that I remember. I remember going, meeting him on the train station when he was uh, coming home and, and saying goodbye to him on the train station when he had to go back in. So application for immigration was never going to be successful until he was cured. They had, you know, they had to do that. And in the meantime, she she would go out to work. So that was that was a life. In the meantime, I had a wonderful time in Belgium, being raised by these wonderful people, embraced by all their friends and and family. And for me, you know, life was pretty good. I was I was pretty happy. I had no real idea of the hardship that uh, the refugees went through in these camps, these huge camps. There was there were refugee camps all throughout Germany, throughout Europe, France, Greece. We were actually lucky that the United Nations pulled some strings, if that's the word to use, and actually asked and managed to get some countries to reopen their borders and take more refugees um, from the Second World War. And so we were very lucky. Um, and one of our applications was successful. We applied to um, 
we applied to the UK, which was successful. We, we had to undergo a, a two-year period for application. And in, so the process started in 1959. And in 1961, we were one of 700 families that was taken by the United Kingdom under the World Refugee Year that was um, sponsored by the United Nations. Um, and so we were able finally to leave the refugee camp in Nuremberg and go to the United Kingdom. That camp closed in 1968. So it's a long, long time after the war. Mm -hmm. You know, thank goodness for the internet. I've actually been in touch with some of those people that lived in the camp. Uh, Not in my era. Some of them were later. Um, And, you know, that's been an interesting experience. Uh, meeting up with these people and hearing their stories. There we were, 1961, a new life. Finally, we had managed to, uh, you know, to get away from Germany, to begin a new life. Of course, we couldn't speak the language. Uh, what happens when you're a refugee? You um, you spend some time in a in one of their um, homes um, that's run by the that was run by the British Council for Aid to Refugees, as it was known then. And um, they give you the basics of uh, living in in a, an English-speaking country, some basic English, you know, going shopping. Can I have a pound of meat? Can I have a pound of mince? Can I have a... And, of course, the cuts of meat are different. The vegetables were different. It's a big learning curve when you come into a country and you can't speak the language. They give you the rudiments of English and uh, the rudiments of, uh, you know, of what to expect. And they also set you up with uh, your initial home. I mean, um, the the Council for Aid to Refugees, which is still, it's now called the Council for Aid to Refugees, not the British Council anymore, but it still exists and it still looks after people that come from war-torn, war-torn countries, refugees worldwide, and resettles them. And that's what it was. It was a period of resettlement for us. We eventually, after six months, induction if you like sorry three months induction we uh we we were relocated to Hitchin in Hertfordshire uh England and uh, my father was found um job with Harkness Roses it's a very well-known um company that grows roses outdoors so for his TB which he had recovered from this was perfect outdoor work for his lungs um my mom did some sewing for people we were given a home to live in that was sponsored by a, a teaching association, I guess is what you would call it, teaching association. They sponsored our family. They raised money to furnish a, a house um, with a job. We were able to pay the rent and so on. And we started to try to integrate into um, British society, English society, which was hard work for somebody who doesn't speak the language. My father, who wasn't particularly gifted with languages, found a home. Uh, we were sent to Hitchin in Hertfordshire because it was a big Polish community. My stepfather was Polish. So that's why we, we were moved there and tried to integrate into this area. So he had, um, you know, he had a group of people that he could associate with. My mother, of course, was German, you know, German speaking. 
And when it came out that she was German speaking, she had a difficult time being becoming integrated in this Polish community because, of course, the, the Poles had suffered greatly under the Nazis. And as far as she was concerned, she had been a Nazi. She didn't tell people about her Jewish heritage and what had happened to her because it was a source of shame. I mean, the Jews were never that well liked by the Germans or by the Poles. I mean, you know, it, w it was something that she kept secret. Of course, my stepfather knew about it, but it was not it was not shared. He knew about that when he took her on. And the marriage of convenience was was um, arranged. So um, she was kind of ostracized. He started to drink a lot. Um, the life that they had hoped for was not forthcoming. She wanted, uh, she had planned a future for us. This was going to be a wonderful opportunity for us to leave all that horrible history behind and make, make a new start. Um, his drinking got worse. He drank the, the money that he earned, which wasn't, you know, a great amount of money. So she decided that she would have to go to work. And what could a woman do in those days? Not very much other than go into service, especially women who spoke so such little English. So luckily for us, um, in a, t a nearby, nearby town, there was um, a small stately home called the Berry, and it was um, run by a colonel and a lady, and they were willing to take on my mom as housekeeper. They needed a housekeeper. And so um, she moved in. She, you know, she lived on site and she wasn't going to leave me behind. So I moved in with her. We had our own apartments. It was very posh. Uh, my mom thought it was wonderful that now, all of a sudden, she had this well-to-do life. You know, she had her own sitting room where, she, where the butler brought her tea. <laughs> it was something out of Downton Abbey, you know. It was not all, quite on that scale, but... For her, it was wonderful, and you know, and she she enjoyed being there. And I thought it was like fairyland. I could go into all the bedrooms and pretend I was a princess, and while she was making the beds and so on, you know. I mean, I, at that point, I was like nine years old. So for me, it was a fairy tale. But unfortunately for her, it was hard work. And of course, when it came out amongst the other staff that, uh, well, I don't know if they found out that she was Jewish, but the fact that she was German there was not a good thing. It was difficult for her to make friends that accepted her um, for what she was. She was always going to be labelled German and therefore Nazi. And that's that's the way it was. I mean, I, I understand it. I'm sure she understand it. Did it make her bitter? I think she tried not to be. She was very hardworking and she had me. You know, she had me to look after and if you think about what had happened to her in her life, I mean, the fact that I came along and she had a child after this terrible life and this terrible afterlife, after the war life, um, you know, she had something to live for. I was her life. We left there after um, a few months. She managed to get a job as a housekeeper for an old gentleman, um, which was great because then she was by herself. You know, she could look after him. Um, and we had the comforts of a home. She had already decided, or her husband had already decided that the marriage was over and had found himself a, a new lady friend. So there was um, the beginnings of a divorce 
in the in the future. In the meantime, she continued working and raising me. She decided that she would try for nurses training. Her English improved. Um, she thought she was capable of doing that. So we moved. We, she had several jobs. She started working in a hospital. I think this is what gave her the idea. Um, and we moved to Papworth in uh, near Cambridge. And she became a student nurse there. Unfortunately, um, you have to remember by then, my mom was um, in her 50s. So this was tough going for her. So um, she got sick and she couldn't continue her studies. So then we um, asked for help from the British Council for Aid to Refugees because she couldn't look after me and she couldn't look after herself. And uh, we moved back to where we had started in um, the UK, which was down in the south coast, Worthing, the kind of reception area where we had first gone and learnt the rudiments of English. And we were um, housed by the by the Council for Age of Refugees. She gradually worked her way back to health and started working again. But, you know, it was all low-paying jobs. Um, yes, we got help from the British Council for Aid to Refugees. Um, but on the whole, between jobs, you know, we managed to survive independently. By the time I once worked out, by the time I was um, 16, we had moved... Ooh, we had moved 12 times, I think it was. I had gone to three different schools... Um, I don't know how many jobs my mum had had, low-paying jobs, but, you know, we were happy, we were together, this was the main thing, she had a life, she had me to look after, everything was invested in me. Unfortunately, of course, when you're a teenager, that becomes a bit of a burden. Um, I, I was just, I was just <laughs> going to ask two, two things, is, because mm -hmm. you talk a lot about how it affected your mother, but I think... For you as well, as a child, to go through all that, you know, it's quite, you know, that's really traumatic for you as well, I think. You know, sort of living in different countries, being in orphanages, being fostered in different countries, backwards and forwards, moving cities, moving different places. That yes. Must have had a, and, and I was, I was, I was aware that I was different. Mm -hmm. Well, we were both different not being able to speak the language was always going to be a, mar um, a mark on her. I mean, her English did become perfect, but she never lost her accent, so she was always a foreigner. I, on the other hand, nobody knew that I was um, foreign. I changed my name, tried to integrate. You knew you were different, so you tried desperately not to be, I think is the way I, I would put mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. um, I spoke perfect German. I was even a little clipping in the local newspaper about the refugees, my mom and I, and, uh, and my stepfather, and the fact that um, after a year I could speak perfect English. Integration for me was important, but I knew that I was always going to be different. And that, yeah, that leaves a scar. And when you become a teenager, it's a bigger scar, because you don't want to be different. So then, I, then you know, the, was there shame? I guess I was. I was a little bit ashamed of, of my mom, but I... How could I be ashamed of her because, you know, she had gone through this terrible life. I didn't even know about it till I was 13. But that was a big why burden. Did, to, why? Why did she, why did she tell me? Tell you so why 13? did she tell me when I was 13? We had, 
it was when we moved um, back to Worthing to this house that was um, housed refugees and we discovered our neighbour upstairs was German. So uh, my mum introduced herself to her when she moved in and my mum discovered that, yes, she was German, but she had she had been a Nazi. And there was this assumption by this lady that my mother obviously must have had some Nazi uh, feelings. And um, she told her that she had been the wife of the commandant of a camp. Now, I don't ever, I didn't ever find out what kind of camp it was. I mean, it could have been, a, could have been a labor camp. I mean, I dread to think. I don't know. All I know is I was sitting downstairs. My mother came downstairs into the living room and she was in a state, a terrible state. And not crying, not just kind of displaced, staring off into the distance, you know, I guess remembering, because all, after all this time, she had put all that behind her. She'd never told me anything about her history or what happened to her during the war. I would never have thought to ask. I never, you know, I, I was 13 years old. Why would you ask a thing like that? Mm -hmm. So she told me that this lady had been, uh, and then she told me her secret. I guess having gone down the path of memory, she felt that she had to tell me what had happened to her. And this is when she told me um, about my my past. This is when she told me about her past, her Jewish background. And it was the first time that I'd ever heard of the fact that she had suffered. I mean, I knew a little at 13. What, what do you know about the Second World War? Very little. So I kind of took it on board, but I, I had to find out what it was all about. You know, I realized this terrible suffering that she must have gone through. I mean, the images that they shared then of the war were the concentration camps and the fact that she'd, you know, been in one or could have been in one and gone through this. Imagine how, you know, how that affects you when, you, when as a 13-year-old, you discover this about these secrets. It was like she had... she had this whole life that I never knew about. So I took on a big burden then because I realized that she'd had this terrible life and I had to make sure that she was happy. Well, when you're 13 and just starting to become a teenager, that's difficult. So I was always very guarded and reserved around her and tried to make her happy and so on. And by the time I was um, 16, 17, 18, I couldn't wait to get away, you know, it was, uh, and that brings you a big feeling of guilt as a child, you know, so yeah, it was um, the first opportunity I, I had really is uh, I, I got away and it was a shame because she had invested all this love and life, her life in me and then suddenly it was my responsibility to make her happy, which is very difficult for a child, for a teenager. So yeah, took me a long time to get over that. And in fact, it was kind of repressed. All I needed to do was basically to get away. So of course, at 18, I met my husband-to-be. He was Scottish. I moved to Scotland. I was so happy to unburden myself from this responsibility that I felt I had to keep my mum happy. 
which I feel, you know, bad about and felt increasingly bad about. But how do you cope, you know, as an adult and bringing up children and trying to keep your mum happy? You know, I think all all married um, children deal with that responsibility in one way or another, right? So for me, it was kind of repressed. Um, and it wasn't until after she passed away that uh, I had a bit of a an issue with it and um, had a, you know, a nervous breakdown. When I looked through all the papers that she had and I, and I realized for a start that she'd had a baby at the end of the war in 1945, I mean, that devastated me because I thought, well, you're right, I felt so guilty. I thought, I thought, I thought I had done the best that I could have for her. I mean, she was happy living in England, even though I was in Scotland. She'd made friends. Her life had settled down. She had a normal retirement, if you like, looking after her health. She has, She joined a church. She, has, she was part of a community. She had friends. I thought her life was good, you know, given what what she'd endured. And then I discovered that there was more to it. And then I thought, well, why on earth didn't she tell me all this? Was I that bad a child that she couldn't share these things with me? So eventually I had um, I had some counselling, um, bereavement counselling after she passed away. I think that, I think that her life, you know, was happy. I think she had a happy ending to her life by then I had had two children and she you know she got to spend time with her children in her in her last year I moved her up to Scotland when she was getting frailer and I realized that you know her health she had managed to look after herself so long she was careful about her health Uh, I didn't tell you when I was um, 17 she had a heart attack I mean, she had a heart attack in her mid-50s. And this was all as a result of, you know, the war years and malnutrition and so on. You know, a lot of the guilt was the fact that I left her. I left her. I couldn't cope with all that responsibility. I don't know. If she, I think she understood. You know? I think, Saskia, you were a wonderful daughter, really. And, you know... You took on a huge amount, and you were a child. Yes. Yes. And she got um, to know your children, as you said, which was lovely. Yes. And, you know, you looked out for your mother a lot, a lot. The last six months of her life, I think, even though she was, you know, slowly dying, she had heart failure, she, she got to spend quality time with her grandchildren. Um, they were around there every day. She taught me all the things that I guess I missed out as a teenager, rebellious teenager that I was, <laughs> or tried not to be. And um, you know, the la- at least we had that. We had that. It was the last good few six months. I would like to thank you for telling your story and your mother's story. And I do think that you were a very special daughter. And I do hope that this hasn't upset you too much um, because it is difficult, I think, reliving it. But 
you are a very special person and you know you've written a book about your mother and all the way through this testimony that you've given it's always about your mother but you are part of this as well and really I think you're quite exceptional thank you and thank, thank you, you very for much listening to my story thank you thank you so tell me about your life now so where are you you're in America yes um, and so what happened was and I suppose it's part of the story is I don't think after my mum died I had a bit of a nervous breakdown uh, my first husband didn't really understand so the marriage kind of faltered and my second husband that I met in 2000 is American. And so uh, uh, I'm now living in America. I'm living in, in Arizona in a wonderful retirement place. We get the best weather in the winter ever. It's just a wonderful place to live. Good fun. And my two sons from my first uh, marriage, uh, when we split up, my youngest son was was about 30, and my oldest was 18. He started university. It was a kind of a tough single life, and then eventually I met my second husband, who's American, and now I live in the States. Um, so life has been pretty good to me. All the things and that I went through, I had um, I had a chance to come to terms with it. I wrote a book. I now talk about what happened Um to my mom and I, um, to keep the, those those stories alive. Unfortunately, the people that I tell the stories to, it, it's strange, politics in the U.S. is a little bit awkward. <laughs> There's kind of a disconnect between telling the story, excuse me, and um, having people actually hear it, listen to it, mm -hmm. and understand it. And they all think that I'm just wonderful, but I don't think they necessarily take on board what it is to be an outsider, what it is to be treated like an outsider, to be treated differently, to be labeled, etc., which is what I, I'm trying to tell the story. That's the reason I tell the story. What happens, you know, when a, a country rises up against a people, it's it. It's crazy. And we've seen it a lot. It still goes on. You tell the yeah. story so that, you know, people hopefully would learn a lesson. And some people do. And that's probably why I'll, I'll keep telling it. Yeah. And am I right in saying that you have one son that lives in Scotland? I have one son who lives in Scotland, uh, in Glasgow. And I have one son who lives in Australia. So I always say when I give my talks is that um, Hitler may have tried to destroy us, but actually we, uh, uh, we are still spreading <laughs> across the globe and we Absolutely. are continuing to tell our stories. Because when I'm in Australia, uh, I've been uh, handing out books. When I'm in Scotland, I give talks. When I'm in the US, I give talks. And uh, my story will um, go on. And I'm so grateful that Gathering the Voices is, is telling those stories and arranging for people to tell their stories. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.